This podcast is supported by an unrestricted education grant by Medtronic. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's I Critical Care podcast. I'm your host today, Dr. Michael Smith, and today we're going to be talking about respiratory depression on hospital wards and the potential critical care implications of that. And I'm joined by Dr. Ashish Khanna. He is the Associate Professor of Anesthesiology and Section Head for Research with the Department of Anesthesiology, Section on Critical Care Medicine at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Dr. Khanna, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, very interesting topic, right? And I think at the end of the day, what we want to focus on is that hospital ward patient and how best to manage what might be going on there, specifically in the context of respiratory depression. So I thought maybe we could start off, since you're the expert in this, could you define just in general, what are the demographics of respiratory depression, including opioid-induced depression, on the surgical and on the medical wards? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the demographics of respiratory depression are varied. And we used to think that it only affects those who are a certain age group or, you know, have obstructive sleep apnea and so on and so forth. But we now know that almost no one is sort of immune to it. So almost everyone is at risk. Most of the data we have is retrospective registry data And what that data shows us is that folks are hypotensive and hypoxemic on the ward or the general care floor much more commonly than we ever perceived them to be. We've always thought that the general care floor is a place where our patients are safe and they're medically stable and they're essentially transitioning to go home or get out of the hospital. However, most data suggests that anywhere between 50 to 75% of all hospital mortality happens because of events that are triggered on the general care floor. So events that don't happen in critical care units or acute care settings, but events that are triggered on the general care floor. This happens across Mm. the sexes, across age groups, and and so on and so forth. So, for example, the data I like to quote all the time is the Get With The Guidelines Registry, which is essentially a registry of code blue events that happen across the country. So, in 2012, they estimated nearly 40,000-plus acute cardiorespiratory depression events in hospital systems in the United States. And about 40% of these patients who had these acute cardiorespiratory depression events did not make it out of the hospital alive, irrespective of the immediate result of the cardiopulmonary resuscitation they got. So it's a problem. Mm. And unfortunately, we've sort of known that it's there, but we've been oblivious to what we can do about it. So in your opinion, there's a a great need then for a prediction scoring tool, right? Is something that's standardized, validated, that allows us to do a better evaluation of ward patients. Is that kind of where we need to go? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you look at it, 
uh, in another sense, there's so much data out there that shows that our patients stay, for example, under an oxygen saturation of 90% or stay under a blood pressure, mean arterial pressure of 65 for prolonged periods of time. The way we monitor our patients on the floor right now, mostly across the world, is every four to six hours, a provider will go in the patient's room to check in on a patient. And knowing that patients are have been hypotensive, hypoxemic, and respiratory depressed for prolonged periods of time, those snapshots of time surveillance is not good enough. It doesn't pick up the amount of time a patient is at risk. So the answer to that, well, someone might say, just put everyone on continuous monitoring across the hospital. But then the, the flip side of that is that that means alarms all over the place. That essentially means converting your general care floor into an intensive care unit. Right. And, and yeah. clearly that's not the answer because that means a lot of alarm fatigue. And that means that no one's going to respond to those alarms, which means there will be no difference in outcomes. So to, to navigate that, we need to understand, hey, you know, what are the patients that are most likely to decompensate and sort of triage them into a strata of low, middle, and high risk. And that's exactly what we need to do. And so, yeah, so those that maybe are in that high risk, they receive the continuous monitoring, right? And maybe those in moderate and low, maybe moderate gets a little more of a check-in. Low is the the normal every four or six hours, something like that. Is that kind of, if we can risk stratify better, that would then tell us which ones need continuous monitoring at the end of the day, right? Yeah, right. And I will say that it's not just continuous monitoring. I would say continuous monitoring with actionable items and intervention and continuous proactive interventions, which would include monitoring-based interventions, but other interventions as well. For example, you know, checking in on their beta blocker status, checking in on their fluid balances, someone going into the room and giving them the incentive spirometer to use again and again, and so on and so forth. Some very common sense things, but obviously on the highest risk category, those should happen all the time. So so that's would, that would be the difference between the highest and the lowest risk in terms mm-hmm. of interventions. How does the Prodigy trial fit into all this? Can you help us correlate the results of that trial with the, the clinical practice of, of critical care medicine? Sure. For years, as I practiced critical care medicine, I thought about and published something called the 4 a.m. phenomenon. And really, the 4 a.m. phenomenon was nothing more than that middle-of-the-night, unprecedented admission to a surgical or medical intensive care unit for a patient who wasn't doing well on the floor and lots of needless investigations, and six hours later in the morning, he or she is doing well, send them back to the floor, find out later that probably got overdosed with opioids or was not breathing well, no one checked in, and by the time they found him, it was down and blue, and they had to call a rapid, right? So unprecedented ICU admissions are bad one way or the other, and opioids are still the mainstay of pain medication uh, across the hospital. So putting both of those things together and all the information we had that suggested that continuous monitoring was one possible way to predict for and see these events before they actually happen, we thought that Prodigy 
which essentially stands for prediction of opioid-induced respiratory depression on inpatient wards using continuous capnography and oximetry, would give us a prediction tool that would then help the providers and provider teams to stratify their patients into who needs that continuous monitoring and continuous intervention versus who can sort of be in a hybrid approach and also move their patients up and down in these risk categories depending on how they're doing. And really, that was the birth of Prodigy. The The way we did Prodigy was also interesting. We did it across not just one part of the world. We, it was a truly international trial. It was done in North America in Europe and Asia, since cultural practices of uh, the way opioids are dosed and the way patients are monitored are slightly different in different parts of the world. So we used to, we wanted to construct a very generalizable tool. The other thing that was very unique for Prodigy is the way we did the monitoring data. So patients who were on the general care floor and were scheduled to get intravenous or parenteral narcotic medications for pain control were all a part of the trial. They were all put on continuous oximetry and capnographic monitoring that would include a heart rate, respiratory rate, oxygen saturation, and end-tidal CO2, along with a variable called the integrated pulmonary index. All this monitoring was blinded and silenced. So this monitoring was going on in the background, but the nurses and providers were going in every four to six hours in a patient's room to check in on a patient. So normal practices were followed, the monitoring data was collected in the background, and then it was sent to a group of experts, a clinical event adjudication committee that looked at thousands of hours of continuous waveform data and separated artifact from respiratory depression to opioid-induced respiratory depression and then we use that data to build a score based on a multivariate logistic regression analysis, a score that we call the Prodigy score. And, and then we're able to separate our patients. For example, the, the highest risk category on the Prodigy score was more than 15. The lowest risk category was all the way down to less than 8. And there was a separation of an odds ratio about 6 on the patient in the highest risk versus the lowest risk category. And, and while I'm talking about that, just the Prodigy score itself, I'm delighted to say that we came up with a very simple and easy-to-use scoring tool compared to a lot of scores that are very complicated that need you to go online and you know construct this and do this calculator and so on. Prodigy was simply a five-variable tool, age, male sex, opioid naivety, sleep disordered breathing, and the presence of chronic heart failure. And that's all it was. So age was our biggest driver. More than 60 with every decade of age was the biggest driver on this. But the bottom line is that Prodigy was a tool that every bedside nurse, as soon as she received a patient on the floor, could essentially do a Prodigy risk score then and there. And then the hope is that someday when you and I put orders for a opioid into a patient's chart that the Prodigy tool would automatically then pop up the mm -hmm. Prodigy risk right. score, alert me, and then ensure that I do more to my patient than just prescribe the morphine and walk away. 
fantastic stuff. So this is a simple tool that came out of this international study. I, gu- I guess the next question then is, is where are we at with this? Are more and more hospitals using the Prodigy score at this point? And if not, what's the plan to get this implemented in more hospitals? Yeah, so um, the, where are we at? Well, you know, we just published the paper a few months back. And like I told you, it's a very easy to use tool. What we would like to do now is to externally validate it. So for the purposes of the trial, it was an internally validated tool where, you know, there was 1,400-odd patients in the trial, and using bootstrapping, we we got the score and we internally validated it on the same population that we used to calculate Mm -hmm. the score. We would now want to have a smart investigator in some part of the world pick this up and say, I want to do this on a subset of patients with major abdominal surgery on the general care floor and see if it prevents ICU admissions, if it prevents rapid response calls, and, and so on and so forth. So, yes, next step is operations. It's very easy to to implement. Next step is also validation. For external validation, though, we will need hospital systems to adopt continuous monitoring because it's a tool built on continuous monitoring. So we will have to we'll have to do that. Yeah, yeah. And and looking at these, as you said, different subsets of populations, different types of surgeries, et cetera, that's where you really will see the impact of this, of the Prodigy score, right? So that's fascinating stuff. You know, I I think a great place for us to end with this, Dr. Kana, is simply like, what would you, since you were so involved with this, right, what would you like the listeners of this show to know about respiratory depression and about the Prodigy score? Huh. So what I would like the listeners of this show to know is that respiratory depression uh, is common, it's profound, and rather unpredictable on the general care floor. In fact, if you're a critical care provider and you work really hard on a patient in the ICU, then you discharge that patient from the ICU to the floor and that patient bounces back to the ICU as a readmission two days later with respiratory depression, I know that there is nothing more frustrating than that. And I wish that we understand that it is a very common sense thing of just laying all eyes on the patient at all times that would prevent a lot of these readmissions and really make our work as critical care providers more useful where we could safely get our patients out of the hospital. So I want my friends and colleagues in the critical care fraternity to understand that, you know, even though our work is limited to an intensive care unit, what happens on the floor has a direct bearing on what we do in ICUs in terms of workload, needless readmissions, and better utilization of hospital resources. And a simple little intervention like this, improving monitoring on the general care floor, more portable multi-parameter continuous monitoring, risk tools like Prodigy to guide us with interventional arms, so teaching our, our nursing staff and colleagues on how to respond to alarms in an effective manner will all help us achieve better outcomes for our critically ill patients in the ICU. Excellent. Excellent summary. I want to thank you for coming on the show today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care Podcast. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Mike. Thanks for listening.
This podcast is supported by an unrestricted education grant by Medtronic. Michael A. Smith, M.D., received his medical doctorate from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. He practiced internal medicine and radiology in Dallas, Texas in the early 2000s before transitioning to the pharmaceutical and nutraceutical industries as an educator and consultant. The iCritical Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.